uh, but it's also Reformation Day, and you guys here this morning are a part of that celebration, whether you know it or not, because over 500 years ago, a, a man by the name of Martin Luther uh, went to the door of All Saints Church and nailed his 95 theses to uh, the door, and we are a Protestant church. Uh, we are the rebels of the Catholic Church, uh, us along with many others, and so we, uh, we celebrate that today. Hopefully, you'll spend some time just reflecting on uh, really just a lot of the beautiful things that came out of the Reformation, like, you know, literacy. You know, really, I mean, in, full, in all seriousness, the literacy of the world has increased drastically because of the Reformation. And I think it's one of the beautiful things we see about how God works and works through his people, that things like that happen. Um, our access to scripture is way better today than it was 500 years ago. And so we're just so thankful and we're excited to be able to celebrate that. And as part of that, if this is your first time or it, you have not gotten one yet, uh, we actually have scripture journals that are based upon the book of 1 Corinthians, which we're studying. So if you want one of those and haven't gotten one of those yet, just raise your hand and we'll have someone come around and give one of those to you. We want you to be able to be in the word with us, studying, taking notes if you want any. And that's our free gift to you. Uh, before I dive into our text, this morning, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I want to remind all of you that there is a special members meeting today about 10 minutes after church, so we're not going to wait super long. It's going to be about 10, 15 minutes, and uh, I would encourage you to stick around for that, even if you are not a member, but you consider Alathia your church home. We've got some pretty big news to share with you guys that we want to share about the future of the church and where we will likely be meeting in the next couple of months, and so if you will please stick around for that um, after service we would love for you to be with us. So uh, this morning's sermon is going to be the first part of a three-part kind of mini-series that we're taking uh, in 1 Corinthians. And this morning, uh, well, let me, let me say this. The, the next three weeks are going to cover marriage and singleness and a lot of what Paul talks about here in chapter seven. And in order to understand the text that Kiara read for us earlier, we need to look at this text through the first 16 verses of chapter seven through the lens of understanding a lot of what we talked about last week. And I'm actually glad a ton of you were here last week because I was petrified that after I went through that sermon last week, all of you are gonna be like, Kevin's mean. I'm never coming back ever, ever again. But hopefully, right, God's word did what it always does because it's alive and active piercing hearts, right? Encouraging us to follow after him, even if that means laying down what we believe to be true in light of what God's word says, knowing that it is in fact true. And so this morning though, I wanna go back and I wanna read verse 18 of chapter six for you, because I think it'll help us understand the transition that Paul makes once he gets into chapter seven. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, if you weren't here last week, well, we have the sermon online. Go back and watch that sermon from last week. We unpacked that entire section. We talked about sexual sin. We talked about sexual immorality. We talked about what Paul was trying to correct with the sexual ethics inside of the church at Corinth and why there are a lot of uh, parallels that we can draw today because we are products of the sexual revolution. Our culture has been through that entire experience. And so we view sexual ethics much the same way that the Corinthians did. And there's a lot of things that need to be corrected and thought through so that we might come in line with God and his word. But understanding verse 18 is gonna allow us to see this transition that Paul makes in verse one. And, and what we're going to see is Paul's gonna rapid fire through principles today. So my, my presentation this morning, my sermon this morning is gonna kind of be more lecture style where we're gonna be moving through each individual point. And then next week and the following week are gonna be building uh, upon that. And so the next three weeks are, are gonna kind of look this way. Uh, this morning is going to be on the principles of marriage, singleness, and divorce and unlocking kind of what the text says this morning. Next week will be all about marriage and God's design. And then two weeks from now will be all about singleness 
and how it's also part of God's design and how it's good. And, and we'll have a lot to talk about uh, on that. And so if you guys wouldn't mind, just we're going to take a moment here. We're going to bow our heads. We're going to pray. We're going to ask God to meet us here this morning as we kind of plow through what the Lord says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity uh, to be in your word this morning. God, I thank you that um, you have preserved your word for us. I thank you that we can study it together. God, would you give us eyes to see? Would you, Holy Spirit, give us understanding? And Lord, will you grant us repentance where we might need repentance? Will you grant us faith where we need to trust in you? And may all of this be done for your glory and your namesake so that the name of Jesus will be made great here in Gainesville, in the state of Florida, all across this country, and all across the world so that every knee might bow to the feet of Jesus Christ. And I ask this all in his precious name. Amen. Amen. So, Chapter 7, let me read these first five verses for you, and then let's start kind of unpacking it. And what we see, we've got got three major principles that Paul's going to go through this morning. The first one is he's going to address how married couples should approach intimacy in light of the sexual immorality that was going on inside the church at Corinth. Then he's going to address marriage versus singleness, and then he's going to address divorce. And so, Kind of these first five verses are going to be about intimacy inside of marriage. He says, now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. And likewise, the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control." So the first thing that Paul's doing here after everything that we saw in chapter 6 is he's going to start correcting some bad theology on sexual intimacy inside of marriage. It's the first thing he has to correct. You'll see there that he quotes them, right? And the quote that they come up with is, it is not, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, and so everything that we talked about last week, everything that Paul tried to teach them and help them to understand on God's design for intimacy and God's design for sexual ethics and, and how the church was to, supposed to approach that, their response to that was to say, okay, so sex is bad, right? We, we should be celibate. Uh, we should be ascetic, right? These are, this is kind of the approach to life. This is what God wants from us. You know, he wants us to live the monastic lifestyle where we're not having contact with one another. And here's the reality, right? Because I see a few people smiling and laughing like, wow, that's a big leap to take uh, in that situation. But this is kind of what human beings do. We identify an error and we run the complete opposite direction to correct that error, which then typically leads to more errors just of a different kind. Right, think, about, think about this, okay? Last week, I spent some time talking about the sexual revolution and how that was kind of a slow process starting in the early 1900s, but really gained steam by the 1960s, and that today, most of us in this room kind of implicitly believe some things about sexual ethics, not because we know them to be true or not, but simply because it's just the cultural heartbeat of where we live and who we are and the way the culture has moved since that movement took place in the 1960s. And what happened during that time, and even with all the negatives that came from it, is the church identified during that time period, hey, this is problematic. 
right? This is outside of God's design. This is outside of what God wants. Hey, we should, we should push back against the culture here. We should be preaching the word of God here. We should be encouraging people to follow what God might say about these things. And so as they approach that, what came of that what is commonly known as today as purity culture. And some of you guys are like, I'd see the fear in your eyes when I even say those words because you grew up in it and you know what came out of that, right? And what that was is that was a response to a negative cultural influence that was outside of the word of God. But what often came with purity culture was its own set of negative and false teachings about God and sexuality. And a fear about those things, not understanding that intimacy was created by God as a gift to be enjoyed inside of marriage. And for many people, it became something separate from that because of what purity culture taught. And this this happens all the time. And so when we look at the church at Corinth and we see them responding to this negative influence of the sexual immorality going on inside of the church, their kind of natural response is to say, okay, we just need to cut it all off. It's all bad. Everything about it is bad. There's nothing good about it. And Paul is going to address this issue but he's going to address it specifically for married couples because that is where intimacy is supposed to be had inside of God's design, right? He says, but because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Church, hear me on this, okay? In light of what we talked about last week with sexual intimacy, Marriage is God's only provision for sexual fulfillment. I'm not saying that you can't experience it, that you can't give into it outside of marriage, but anything outside of marriage is against God's design and there will be consequences for that. Now, I can't tell you all the time what those consequences will be, but there will be negative consequences. Now, some of you are reading this and you're going to immediately think, okay, Paul's basically saying the only reason to get married is so that I can have sex. And that's not what he's saying. Paul has a very, very high view of marriage. We're going to see that next week in our sermon. We're going to study through that and work through that together. But Paul is saying marriage is a part of God's design And in God's design for sexual intimacy, marriage is where that is supposed to be enjoyed. And so Paul pushes conjugal rights very hard here because the Corinthians were married and they were withdrawing from one another because they assumed any sort of sexual uh, contact was wrong in light of all the other craziness that was going on inside of the church. And so... Here, I mean, like, again, let me just remind you, right, of how messed up the church in Corinth was. They were literally walking into temples and having sex with prostitutes because they thought, hey, this is good. We should just enjoy this. And then as as a response to that, some were withholding sex from one another, which is causing all sorts of issues, right? And so We talked about this last week, that there was a biblical understanding to intimacy and how to approach that. But let's just like kind of summarize what I talked about last week, which is two quick points, right? This You could call this a biblical view of sex inside of marriage, right? One, it's a privilege. Throw up Proverbs chapter five for me really quick, right? And look at what he says. Starting in verse 18, He says, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. See see what Solomon is saying to his son there? He's like, hey, look, like once you're married, enjoy this, right? It's a privilege. You get to enjoy this inside the context of marriage. 
But that is where it's supposed to be, right? Now, not only is sex taught as a privilege for married couples to enjoy, but it's also taught as a duty. One of those places is in Exodus chapter 21, looking at verse 10, right? Look at what, look at what is said there. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or look at that last part, her what? Marital rights, right? Like, hey, this is, this is a duty that a husband has to his wife inside the context of marriage. And here's what was going on, right? Uh, the, the Israelites, if they took slaves and they took one of the slaves as a wife, they would deny her conjugal rights, because they didn't want to have kids with her, right? And what Moses is saying here is like, you, you can't do that, right? If you take someone as a wife, you take them in, you're going to have to treat them the same way you would treat your, your, other, your other spouse. And there's all sorts of problems with that. And I don't have time to get into that this morning, obviously. But the reality, right, is he's sharing here, hey, this is a duty. And so then when we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, right, Paul's going to say the same thing in verses uh, 3 through 4. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So here's basically what Paul is teaching them. Have regular sexual intimacy with your spouse because sex is a gift to be enjoyed with one another. Sex is a gift that offers some layer of protection in marriage to sexual immorality. It's part of God's design for it. He's like, you guys are struggling with all of this immorality, but you're not participating in the gift that God gave you to help you deal with it. Then on top of that, he's going to remind them, just like we saw last week, that this is supposed to be enjoyed, but not worshiped. And here, guys, hear me on this, right? Here's one of the reasons why God picked this to be this way and why intimacy is designed for marriage. Marriage itself, in its very definition and what occurs inside of marriage, is designed to teach the couple in that covenant how practically how to die to self and live for someone else. That's what marriage is supposed to teach us practically. And we'll talk about that more next week in its design, but that's what marriage is designed to do, where the husband looks to serve his wife and the wife looks to serve her husband. That's what the heartbeat of marriage is supposed to be if it's following God's design. And sex is given by God to teach us to live that out where a spouse gives himself to his wife or a wife gives herself to her husband so they might enjoy that gift as an act of service to one another and to be enjoyed. And sex outside of that design is always self-serving. And you can't convince me otherwise. It's all about giving in to what you want And sometimes that has to even be fought against inside of marriage, but marriage is where it's safe to do so. And so go to this first principle that Paul lays out here. After going through all that he went through in chapter six on trying to correct our sexual ethic and seeing what's going on, he's like, hey, this doesn't mean that sex is bad. We want you to enjoy it. Just enjoy it inside of marriage. Enjoy it properly. Right? Enjoy serving one another in this way so that you might worship God in that. And then he's going to move on to marriage and singleness. Look at verse 6. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one, one, of one kind and one of another, to the un married and the widows, I say this, it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. 
for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Okay, so one, let's, let's start with this. That word concession, I don't know if that's a great translation. I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't think it is. Because when I think of concession, I mean you just kind of give up. Like, okay, like we concede. Like, I'll concede that point to you. And the word in the Greek means more of like, I want to make you aware of something. I want you to know this. I want you to know where I'm coming from as I talk to you about this. And so Paul basically says, so I want to make you guys aware. I wish all of you would remain single. Thanks a lot, Paul. But that's basically, that's basically what he says. I wish all of you would remain single. Now, let me start with this. How many of you guys grew up in the church? Okay, about half the room. Okay, for those of you guys that grew up in the church, how often did the church tell you about how awesome singleness was? One person. I see one hand, right? Because this, this isn't something the church does well. We don't, we don't talk about singleness. As a matter of fact, sometimes if you're single in the church, single, the church can be one of the worst places to be because the church can do such a bad job of this. And I don't want to go into too much depth today because we're going to talk about this again in two weeks. Single people, look at verse 8 with me. And look at what he says. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is what? Good for them to remain single as I am. Singleness is not a curse, guys. It's not. And some of you guys have been conditioned to think that way because of the church. You've been conditioned to think that something is wrong with you because you're not married and having kids already. And that word good there is the same word used in Genesis when God talks about his creation. Like, hey, this is, this is good. Like, it's okay. This is a good part of God's design. And Paul basically says, hey, I've got some real advantages, especially inside of ministry to being single. I wish you guys would all do that as well. But if you can't handle that, you should marry because it's better to marry than to be fighting and burning with passion your entire life. But know this, and look at verse seven. I wish that, all were as I myself am, but look at this. This is, this is key to understanding what Paul's trying to get across here. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. See what he's saying? Single people in the room, it's a gift from God. It's okay. God's okay with you being single. It's a gift. Enjoy it. Married people, guess what? Same thing. It's a gift. It's a gift from God to be enjoyed. And yes, Paul clearly has a preference. He clearly has a preference, but all are gifts. And so then we need to take a step back and we need to think holistically as the church. The single people, the married people, we need to take a step back and think holistically. Okay, then wait a minute. Wait, wait a minute. If both are good, then, then what do we do with this? We encourage one another to live out the gift that God has given us in the current season that we're in. Because that gift may or may not be permanent right now. You know, one day I'm going to die, probably long before Jackie. Jackie hates when I say that, but it's probably a reality. I just, I look at the statistics. Right? And she's gonna be single again. Right, right now, right, her gift is, is, is to enjoy marriage with me. Sorry, honey. <laughs> One day she'll be single again. Right? She'll get to live that out and enjoy that as well. But God asks us as the church not to alienate one another, right, but to encourage one another in that giftedness that God has given us. Married people, hear me on this. Invite single people into your home and into your family life. Love them. Care for them. And please, for the love of God, stop trying to set them up all the time. Please. 
like, oh my gosh. Like, I've done that one time here, my entire time here, because I told Jackie, we're not doing that. We are not going to be those people. Like, I'm the pastor of this church. If it goes wrong, it's going to go really wrong. And I did it with my sister. And it went really, really wrong. It's okay. You can have a relationship with single people, married people, without having to find their spouse for them. Okay? Just love them. Invite them into your home. Encourage them to live out what God is doing in their life as single people. Single people. Invite married people into your life. It's okay. You might not have anything in common. It's all right. It's completely okay. Like, it is completely okay to be friends with someone that's not exactly like you. God, God is really cool with that. He, he loves the idea of people that are different from one another, learning how to love one another and working through that. One of the things I tell you college students a lot, you know, college students will walk in, especially the freshmen, and you, know, you don't realize you're doing it, and so I love you, and so I'm very patient with you. Like, hey, what makes Aletheia different from like any, like the other churches in town? Or, or what makes Aletheia Church different from my campus ministry? Because uh, I'm just trying to figure out whether, you know, you're worth it to me. You don't say that, but it's kind of what you're saying to me. I'm like, cool, I get it, I've been there too. Okay, let me, let me try to, to make this really simple. Okay. One, Jesus died for the church. So that makes us a little different than your campus ministry. I love your campus ministry, but your campus ministry ultimately should fall under the umbrella of the church because that's God's design for seeing the gospel go forward, right? Wholeheartedly believe that, okay? Number two, right? I love campus ministries, for many, many reasons, but they have one fatal flaw, and that's that they teach you that relationships are really easy. And some of you guys are like, no, sometimes it's hard. <laughs> you have no idea how hard it is, right? right? Think about it in these terms. Some of you guys have heard this explanation. You already know what's coming, right? Relationships and friendships inside of the church are like a crock pot, Right? You throw it in there, you get all your ingredients together, and it takes an entire day, sometimes longer, to cook whatever meal's going in the crock pot. But it tastes good. Slow and slow. And so inside the church, we've got married people, widowed people, divorced people, single people, people with families, people that have lost kids, empty nesters. We've got all sorts of things going on. And those people have very little in common in life right now and yet are trying to figure out how to be the family of God together. It's a little complicated. So it takes time, right? It takes time for the 19-year-old freshman to figure out how to hang out with the 35-year-old dad of six. It's just, it's okay that that takes time. But once you figure it out, guess what? It's awesome, right? The young guy helps the 35-year-old know what a meme is, <laughs> right? Right? And the 35-year-old tells the 19-year-old, go to bed before 3 a.m. and get up and go to class, right? Those are things adults do, right? So it works out really, really well that way. Your campus ministry is like a microwave, right? You're all the same season of life. Y'all, at least, even if you don't have similar interests, understand one another. And what, what, you've experienced the same things growing up. You've experienced the same cultural shifts. And so you have like a natural, beautiful understanding of one another. And so you have this like microwave for really, really quick relationships. And it's good. But guess what? Eventually, you leave college. And guess what happens when you leave college? There are very few microwaves around anymore. Right? And that's why you see people like, I'm in my CrossFit club or I'm in the rock climbing group, right? Because they're desperately trying to find something that looks like that. Or if you go to a big enough church, you'll find the young adult ministry, right? Which still is not a microwave because many of those people have jobs and they get off at different times, right? And so what, what do we do? Right? We encourage one another, hey, let's dive into the long, slow, process of figuring this out 
And one of the ways we can do that is the married couples and the single couples can just, we can commit with one another. Hey, let's try to figure this out. Let's be friends. Let's hang out. Why don't you come over when Josiah's having a meltdown at my table in the morning? You know? Like, yeah, you just come over, 8 o'clock. My kids will be up at 6, but if you want to get up at 8, that's fine. We'll eat breakfast then. Just come over, we'll have breakfast. And then you can watch me slowly deal with my kid as he screams about whatever he's melting down about that morning. Right? We can learn this and figure this out together. And then you can, then you can every once in a while, rescue the married couple and say, hey, Get a babysitter. We're going to go do this thing tonight. Let's go have some fun together. It's okay. Like You can invite married people to your single people events. It's okay. Right? And as we do this together, right, we learn to love one another well. Right? We learn to live this out. Right? And we get a bigger picture of what God wants to do in our lives right? as we live this out. Because singleness is not a curse. It's a gift. And marriage is not a curse. It is a gift. Right? And as we live those things out, we make much of Jesus together. All right. Third principle that Paul's going to run through. Divorce and separation. Right, look at verse 10 through 16 with me. He says, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? All right, there's a ton going on here, guys. I'm, so wish me luck as, as we dive through this. So the, so the first thing we need to see is that Paul is addressing two separate scenarios and situations here. And the first one, he's going to address believers, and he's going, to be clear to, he's going to be clear to his audience, this is direct teaching that Jesus gave us, okay? And the second thing he's going to address, he's going to address a marriage where there is a believer or a follower of Jesus and an unbeliever or someone who is not yet a follower of Jesus. And he's going to be clear to distinguish, hey, Jesus never actually taught on this, but this is what I think, right, God wants us to do in this particular scenario or situation, okay? So in the first one, right, when he's talking to believers, verses 10 and 11, here's what he says. Believers, our primary goal, if you are married, should be to never divorce. God, God does not like divorce. He does not. And if two believers come together, they should not divorce. Now, the question is why. So let's go over to Mark chapter 10, because this is where Jesus spends quite a bit of time talking about this. And look at verses two through nine with me. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So here they are trying to trip up Jesus. And this is the question they posed to him. He answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. So see what they're saying there, right? They're saying, hey, as long as we give written notification to our spouse that we're not interested in being married to them anymore, Moses said, it's good to go. Meaning they did not understand the law. That, that's what's being revealed here because Jesus is getting ready to throw down on them. Right, so look at what he says. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. Like, yeah, basically because you're wicked did he allow this. Then look at what he says. But from the beginning of creation, God made male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, 
and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. I see what Paul is, is saying there. God does not like divorce because the covenant of marriage is the bringing together of two separate people into being one, and God doesn't want that broken. Right? If you rip something in half, there's going to be consequences for that. There's going to be pain, heartache. Right? Jesus says in, in, in Matthew chapter 5, verses uh, 30, one and 32, he addresses the, the one instance where divorce is permissible in his eyes. Like, look what he says. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Right, so what Jesus is, is saying there, only adultery is grounds for divorce. And if divorce happens outside of those grounds, and the other one that Paul's going to share is desertion in verse 15, but outside of those grounds, adultery gets committed because divorce is such a terrible thing in the eyes of God. Now, the first thing to see is like, one, God cares about marriage. He does. He cares about your marriage. If you're in here this morning and you're married or you're engaged or you want to be married, God cares about your marriage more than you do. He does. Like I, I, can, I can wholeheartedly promise you that. As someone that is married, it has been abundantly clear to me over the years that God cares more about Jackie and I's marriage than we do sometimes. And if it wasn't for the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, I don't know if Jackie and I would have made it sometimes. But because God cares deeply about us, we're able to move forward, forgiving one, loving, forgiving one another, loving one another, showing grace to one another, showing mercy to one another, not holding up one another accountable for our wrongs consistently, being able to call out sin and allow God to do a work of repentance in our hearts. All of that is a reality because God cares more about your marriage than you do. There is a reality that comes with this, though, and Paul says this even when he's addressing them in Mark chapter 10. Because of sinfulness, because of our own rebellion and wickedness and our lack of trust in God and his word, separation and divorce will occur sometimes even outside of what God has said is permissible. And if so, right, Paul gives two principles to them right there. He said, it's better to remain unmarried or be reconciled. Those are the options. That if, that if two believers go through a process of divorce outside of the permissible reasons that have been listed inside of Scripture, it, they either should remain unmarried or they should reconcile their marriage. And I'm going to break down some practical thoughts on this in just a moment. But just think about this, guys. Divorce is a sad and somber reality, even if the two people involved would tell you it's the right decision for them at the time. It is. My family still has to live out the realities of Jackie's parents' divorce. Right? The way we spend our time, the way we spend our holidays, the things we have to think through about spending time with people, our decisions and things that, and, and consequences that we're still having to deal with some 30 years after Jackie's mother and father got a divorce. Doesn't mean I hate Jackie's parents, doesn't mean I dis even dislike them, but it does mean that it creates complications and there are consequences of that. And to think that there won't be consequences inside of a divorce is foolishness and folly. Because you're breaking apart this beautiful thing that God has made, and it is sad and heartbreaking. Now, here's the good news. 
just as God empowers us when we sin to repent and believe and trust in him and gives us a grace immeasurable so that we might walk through that, he does the same for those that walk through divorce. Right? And this doesn't mean that the church is called to then shun people that walk through this or, or are dealing with this. No, we lock arms with one another and we point one another to Jesus who is able to heal and reconcile all things. Even something as sad and ugly and heartbreaking as divorce. For far too long, Right? The church has done one of two things in dealing with this issue. They either sweep it under the rug and treat it not as a big deal, and we go the way of the world, or we alienate those who are walking through the divorce at the time when they need their church family the most. And God is not pleased when we do that. He calls us to a better way to love one another just as married and single people have to figure it out. The church can figure this out for those that are dealing with strife in their marriages. And the second situation he shows here is for unbelievers or one believer and an unbeliever. And basically what he says is that if you are a believer, maybe you became one after you got married or however that may be working, or maybe you married somebody who wasn't a believer, which would be something we would not recommend to you. It would be something that scripture would not recommend to you. But if you did it, you did it, right? And this is God's charge to you. Don't divorce if your unbelieving spouse wants to stay together. That's his encouragement to you. Now hear all this, guys because it's easy to sit up here and just kind of break down what this stuff says and break down what Paul says. The reality of all this stuff is it's a lot more difficult to live it out, right? What God is asking of us is a very, very high standard. This is why we need community so that we might be able to be encouraged to live these things out together, because this is hard. It's hard to live all this stuff out. It's hard to put sexual immorality to death and flee it like Paul said last week. It's hard, right, to make sure we're experiencing intimacy inside of marriage the way God calls us to. It's hard to figure out how to be like a family when we're in different stages of life and some are single and some are married. It's hard when you're walking through a, a, a difficult season in your relationship inside of your marriage and to be called to stick it out and love one another and forgive one another and extend grace to one another. It's not easy. Nowhere in this passage does Paul start out the text by saying, what I'm about to share with you is something super, super simple for sinners. No, he, said, he just tells it because this is God's design. And we know that when we sin and move outside of God's design, even more destruction and chaos follows. He says here to the believing spouse, hey, if they want to stay with you, don't divorce them. Because you don't know what God will do in your life with that spouse. You have no idea. And at minimum, it's good for the children that you display grace and love for them and your spouse so they might have a better picture of Christ's love for them. And fracturing that will create confusion. So what have we seen this morning? We see that God cares about our relationships. And he cares about our singleness. He cares about both of them. He does. He cares about those that have been through divorce. He wants them to be loved because he loves them. He values how we approach intimacy inside of marriage. He wants us to see that it's a gift to be enjoyed as a couple gives themselves to one another, to steward and enjoy to the glory of God. He wants us to see that God values single people and married people and that both are a gift to the church and that we're gifts to one another that we bring unique perspectives and understanding and abilities.
because of what season and stage of life we're in. He wants us to see that the gospel bridges the gap for us when sin mars all of these things. So some of you guys may be sitting there and you're, and you're thinking, how, how should I process through intimacy? How should I, in my marriage, how should I process through immorality? How should I process through difficulty in my marital life? How should I process through my dating relationship or through my thing? I'm gonna give you guys a few principles. Some of these are biblical. Some of them are, are things that I borrowed from a guy by the name of Andrew Wilson, who I think has really good stuff to say on this. And some of it is just Kevin's opinion on it, which take it for what you want, right? So all of this stuff, I've, I've gathered it to be helpful to you. If you don't find it to be helpful, throw it out. But this, but you know, here, here, here it is, for better or for worse. Number one, if you are in doubt about where you are in your walk with the Lord or whether you're called to be married or what that should look like, remain unmarried. You don't want to be figuring out whether you should be married or not in your marriage. It's a bad time to be figuring that out. I, guys, the number of people that have come to me in the second or third year of their marriage and said, I think I made a mistake is astonishing to me. Heartbreaking. Right? I've had some people be like, I, I just don't know if, if he's the one or she's the one. No, they are. Right? When you got married, they are that, the one. And we're gonna talk about that next week because that doesn't exist. But the reality is this. If you are in doubt, remain unmarried. And some of you guys, you know, we've been so influenced by the church and people around us and by culture, and we've romanticized marriage to this point that's terrible, and we spend more on a marriage than we do a, a down payment on a home. And we, like, do all of these things, and we fail to realize, like, is this the right thing in the first place? Jackie and I, with every couple that we sit down and do premarital counseling with, this is like one of the first things we tell them. Gabe and Charlotte, you're going to hear it on Wednesday. Be ready for it. As much as we love the wedding day, we do. We enjoy it. It's a good time. It's a party. You guys are dancing. We're celebrating. We're hanging out together. It is literally the starting gun of a marathon. And you should care a whole lot more about how you finish that marathon than when you start it. You can literally fall flat on your face at the start of a marathon and win. But it is a marathon, not a sprint. And you should care a whole lot more about the next 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, maybe by God's grace, 50 years together than you should care about four hours on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon. And guys, culture has completely distorted that. And if you, can't, if you are unsure of the next 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, remain unmarried. I promise you, as hard as that might be, it's better than getting into a marriage that you're not ready to, to walk out with someone else. Number two, be in a community that submits to God's word. Guys, we need one another. And the reality uh, is that the church is designed to call out our blind spots and encourage us in hard times. Like there have been moments where I've been deep in sin and unable to even see it myself and have had people lovingly yell at me. What is wrong with you? Let's go wake up. And then encourage me that the Lord was doing a work in me and not to give up and to keep going. God using his church and using his people to bring us back into the light and walk with Jesus. Married couples need that. Single people, you need that. Right? God loves you and he designed you to be in community that is authentic and loving and caring and that'll point you to Jesus. Number three, Submit, and I know that's terrible. We hate that word. Submit to leaders of godly character when confused or unsure. Guys, do you know that the pastors of this church pray for you guys all the time? And we almost always know what's going on in your life. 
And, and sometimes, here's, here's a famous one. You're going through something difficult and you disappear until you can get your act together and clean it up and then you want to come back around again. We know. Like, we know. We know something's going on. We may not know the specifics, but we know something's going on. We don't hate you. We're not mad at you. We want you to experience the forgiveness and mercy that only comes from taking that stuff to Jesus Christ and, and then seeing him having been crucified for it so that you might be forgiven. And then we're going to, you can come tell us the worst thing you've ever done. And then I'm going to tell you this, Jesus died for that. You are forgiven. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And we'll press forward and we'll keep going. And it might be awkward and it might be hard, but it'll be good because it's God's design. Number four, draw from the wisdom of others. Find people you know, love, and respect and learn from them. Pretty simple. Don't need to go in depth. There are people that are older than you. They have kids. You want to have kids one day. You like the way their kids operate. Ask them. Maybe babysit their kids once or twice so that they'll then be willing to tell you all their secrets. I don't know. But right, learn from people that have gone before you and seek wisdom from them. Right? God wants us to do that. And number five, right, and this is an obvious one, run to Jesus. He's there for you. He loves you. He cares for you. Whether we're struggling in an area of sexual immorality, intimacy, struggling with our singleness, we're struggling with marital strife, Jesus gives us all the same response to that. Come to me. Right, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Right, look at what Jesus says. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus invites us to lay down our perception of all these things, to stop trying to live perfectly, to put on the yoke of his perfection and righteous character, and to live under his grace, to live under his mercy, to live under his forgiveness, to live under his discipline, and to live under his love. remembering what Paul spoke about in chapter 6, verse 11, reminding them the very thing that Paul was trying to remind them as he's dealing with the lawsuits they were taking to one another, as he's dealing with their sexual immorality, as he's dealing with their marital strife, as he's dealing with the issue of singleness and marriage inside this church. He wants them to remember not all the rules he gave them, but what Christ has done for them. As he says to them, you've been washed You've been sanctified. You've been justified in Christ. That is who you are. Let's live in light of that. Will you bow your heads and pray with me?